Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Welcome to our show. So I, uh, I'm getting professional about this sort of thing. In what these, sense? these podcasts? Obviously, I, not from a scheduling perspective. What are you talking about? I'm here. I'm on time. I was waiting for you. I'm just saying we're not exactly consistent. No, but that's okay. We're busy. What's professional about what you're doing? I took the. This is this is a pro tip. You should do this too. I took the dog's collar off. Ah. So now he can't make the collar shaking noise. That is very professional. My dog's downstairs, so as long as uh, she doesn't realize that I'm talking to someone, we're good. Mm, good thing dogs don't have good hearing. This is true. Yeah. She's been grumpy all day, so I think it'll be okay. So, uh, what's new? What you been up to? How's the world? Um, the world's good, I guess. Um, what is new? We released Scopebox 3.1 yeah. yesterday. Yeah, I don't know so, if that was meant for me to jump right in or not. but uh, Sure, yeah. I mean, I was going to, you know... Um, We've got that. We're working on something else we're not ready to talk about yet, but uh, pretty excited about. That's a little tease. I'm not very good at teasing. Yeah. Let's talk about Scopebox. Scopebox 3.1. This one's been sort of a long time coming. Yeah, so we didn't... We weren't showing lots at NAB, right? No. No, we were showing... I don't know if we were showing any of the features of this, but we were 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 talking about... back then no we'd, we'd already shipped three we shipped three a couple months before nab and we were talking about three one um, but we hadn't actually added lots i think we were probably promising that we'd added lots but we hadn't actually done it uh that mm-hmm. might i don't know about that it's right right around there um but anyways so yeah this this has been one of those releases it's got lots and lots of um big and small changes um and just the timing getting the timing to line up for a release has been a little tricky over the last few months so uh we put it out this week um it's a pretty solid release definitely if you're already a scopebox user you should upgrade um but even if you're not you should take a look because um, it's got a lot of stuff people have asked about yeah so i mean i guess the things in this one that are really interesting are uh let support which is obviously skating to where the puck is already <laughs> uh, at least as far as what the in, where the industry's going, not necessarily where these tools are going. Right. Um, I think we're the first people with LUTs in a scope. But so, do we want to take a side trip here to talk about LUTs, or do you want to go yeah. through some other features and then yeah, swing let's do back? it. Let's let's hammer through LUTs and then we can go back and talk about other things. Okay. So um, yeah, so I mean, the reason I guess first the problem that we were solving. Um, and I think we've talked about this a little bit in the past. It, we've gotten to a point now where... Um, so Scopebox measures values of pixels, essentially. So it goes in and it finds the color values of various pixels and it draws all these scopes based on those. The problem is the color values in pixels don't actually mean anything. Um, they don't actually even mean a color. Um, they mean a color when referenced in respect to a specific color space. And so you probably heard, you know, HD Rec 709 or CCIR 601 or NTSC or PAL. 
Um, and all of those are color spaces. I mean, some of them are a few other things in addition, but all of those reference a specific color space, which basically says this number is going to look like this on a properly calibrated viewing device. Um, and so in the past, we've been pretty lucky. We've had one, you know, so, you know, basically within walking distance of where you lived, you had one color space. So, you know, back in the SD days, we had NTSC, the Europeans had PAL. Um, I think they, they may even be the same color space. Um, they actually reference the same colors. Um, so that wasn't even an issue. Um, then we switched to HD, and that was a new color space, Rec. 709. And, you know, all the scope manufacturers added that, us included. Um, but now we're getting to a point where with new cameras and digital recording, everyone is picking their own recording formats. So, you know, these are often called log formats. Um, and what they basically mean is that in order to shoot higher dynamic range, they map the, they map their luminance values differently. Uh, they do this in RGB, so it actually causes some color changes too. Um, but the idea being what you record is not what you want to present later, which in the field introduces a bit of a snag because what you record is not what you want to look at because it's not what you're going to show later. But it may be what you want to scope because it's what your camera is actually recording. So where in the format you're recording is where you're going to clip, and in the format you're viewing is what you're going to care about stylistically. And so we've gotten to a point where your scopes and your preview monitor should probably take arbitrary color spaces. And that's where LUTs come in. Um, you want to describe... What's a little bit? Yeah, so... I mean, um, did that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, you know, the, I guess the sort of high-level view is that doing the recording in this way means that you've got more flexibility in post-production to do things like recover highlights or recover shadows. Right. Um, and in some cases, you're going to use a lot to do that. In some cases, it'll be a little more um, fine-tuning in your, in your color post-process. Um, but the, the sort of point is that well, I, 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 think, I think we've joked about this before in seeing uh, uncorrected log footage showing up on sites like Vimeo or whatnot. It'll look very washed out. Um, there'll be very, very little sort of dynamic range to the, to the content. It's going to look very flat and sort of muted. Um, that's sort of what uncorrected log footage looks like. And if you're trying to make qualitative decisions about a shot, that's not very useful because you can't decide sort of how to accentuate lighting or, you know, whether you've got... Um, a particular object in the scene that's really drawing everyone's eye to that object that maybe unintentionally if everything's sort of muted and dull. Um, and so if you're using your scopes for sort of those qualitative decisions, you want to be looking at it closer to what the final grade is going to be. Um, so a LUT is, in essence, um, a text file in, in pretty much every case, but there are lots of different types of LUTs out there. Um, so with Scopebox 3.1, we've chosen to support two main formats. Um, 3DL, which comes out of the Autodesk world, Luster and all of those guys, 
and uh, a cube, which either comes from Aridus or from Blackmagic Resolve, um, and a fair number of other people are using the cube format as well. And if you open one of these up, uh, even the different formats, they're going to look fairly similar in that you're just going to see a big long list of numbers, um, either floating point numbers or just integers. And um, this is where it's going to get into a little bit of a tricky space to try and explain what is going on in these without a uh, visual diagram, because essentially what you're building is a cube, like a 3D cube, um, where you're taking an input value and mapping it into an output value. And so if you can think of every sort of color within your, your color space inside of a 3D cube, um, so the sort of like the book that we talked about. It has uh, three dimensions, like if you stick it on the axis of a graph, you've got X, Y, and Z. But each of those in the cube is actually one of your three colors. So in well, RGB it's, color space, it's red on one side of the cube, green on another edge, and blue on the other. And in the middle, they all mix together. I mean, if you think about um, a couple weeks ago, we linked to a book uh, that was a physical printed book um, that you could flip through and it had every color in it. Um, a lot is sort of like that if you had then a second book uh, with a different set of colors and you could map from one page to another. Um, y you know, it, it's a way to reference in a 3D space any given color. Right. So a lookup table is a, or sorry, LUT stands for lookup table. And it's, it's exactly that. It's a big list. And say your color, so you start with the color and say it's number third, it's the 32nd color in the list. You go to the 32nd spot in the LUT and you get a new color. And so every time that color shows up in the image, it's replaced with the lookup color. Right. And so all it is is a giant like table that you can look up a new color based on the old color. Right. And it's, it's one of these spaces where, uh, the, the, the LUT space, not the color space, um, where lots of different people have come up with their own internal way of doing this sort of thing, it, and there is no sign of anything like a standard. And so, uh, and, and also I think a lot of people who work with LUTs, even people who work with LUTs on a day-to-day -day basis, sort of settle in on a handful or even maybe just one LUT that they use for everything for a given camera or for a given workflow. Um, and so it's it's sort of a strange space because uh, you've got this standard terminology around LUTs, but beyond the terminology, there's very little standardization between them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, I guess. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, where it gets interesting is... so. So I guess we should talk about some of the things that you you can do now that you have LUTs. So um, if you have a camera that outputs log C on HDSDI, which is things like the Ari Alexa, um, the I think the C three hundreds and such do as well. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, we're going to get into this sort of terminology thing because they've all got slightly different uh, varieties of log. Um, at this point, Ari Alexa shares a log format with the Blackmagic Cinema camera. Right. Uh, then there's Sony's S-Log, which is used on the F3 and Friends. And then Canon has a thing called C-Log, not to be confused with Log C, uh, right. and which so, is its own thing. Right. So these are all just arbitrary color spaces is the way to think of them. They're, they're writing out the data in a format that is not user 
readable. Um, it's not something you can look at and say that's that's my video signal. Um, and so, um, and and it's not a single format. It's the, the, you know this is the reason why we didn't just add a log button to Scopebox. Um, you know, the flexibility of LUTs means that you can have a LUT to go from anything to anything. Any any color can map into any new color. Um, and so what you do when you're using one of these cameras is you find a LUT specific to that camera's format. Um, and some cameras may even have more than one format. I mean, you know, you can even go in and create like a custom, you know, gamma profile if you wanted in one of these cameras um, and then create a LUT to reverse that. Um, how you would make that LUT, it gets a little difficult. Some of the duels are arcane. but um, And so for any format that a camera can output in video, a LUT could be made that will convert that color space into the one that we want. Um, and, and so... so and- scope- let me just jump in and say, you know, in, in a lot of cases uh, with these log formats, the manufacturers have actually created these LUTs for you to some extent. Um, some of them are a little tricky to track down, but uh, for all of the big players, you can, with a little bit of Googling, find a quote-unquote official or at least um, officially distributed uh, log-to-linear or log-to-709 conversion LUT. Um, right. Um, Ableton is a good place to look for those. They seem to collect them and post them. At least for any camera they rent or sell. Um, and so, yeah, and so when you get into scoping, you know, things like IREs, um, you know, pulling luminance out of an RGB signal, there is no, there is no mapping for that for an arbitrary color space. And so we use LUTs to bring things back to Rec. 709 where all of that is standardized. And then you can use standard, you know, scoping procedures from there. Um, but when you're in these color spaces, I mean, largely the, the, the standard scopes are going to be used for things like looking for clamping, not necessarily for hitting specific marks. Right, because the assumption is, and, and I just want to reiterate this because I think that there's some confusion. The assumption is that if you're shooting log, you are you must go through a color correction. In right. Post. If 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 nothing more than just running, baking in that LUT later. I mean, that's the absolute minimum. Is you have to take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't have video yet. Right. And so what you're you know you're using a, a LUT in scope box to get a sense of what you're finished product to look like and to get a sense that you're utilizing the dynamic range that's available to you uh, on your camera in a smart way, but um, you're not, as, as Mike just said, using it to hit a specific target because those targets will be arbitrary as part of whatever post-processing you do. Right. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, there are advantages, there are other advantages to using logs, such that things roll off a little bit nicer. You get more of a filmic look to highlights. Um, and so, I mean, I could imagine a case where you would want to do everything in camera as a DP, um, in which case you would, you know, plug in your LUT, whatever you decided on, shoot so that that looks the way you want, and then just post-process to bake that LUT in afterwards. 
um, it's definitely not the common workflow, and you lose many of the advantages of shooting LUT that way. But um, I know some DPs don't like <laughs> leaving lots of options for their footage after they're done. Right. <laughs> um, that maybe gets to the uh, another potential use, which is actually kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. But um, LUTs can be used as well for doing some stylistic preview stuff. Um, and so if you use a tool like Adobe SpeedGrade, you can go in and create a, a look, um, you know, like a bleach bypass or something, or maybe an old old film stock replication, uh, I guess, which is kind of a bleach bypass, but not quite what I meant. Um, and you can actually export that as a LUT out of that tool or any of the other color correction tools, really, um, and bring that into Scopebox and, again, use it to quickly preview, especially looking at your preview monitor, get a sense of what your finished product will look like because, you know, if you know you're going to be applying that that look in post to your, your scene or to your whole film, um, you may want to make decisions about how you're framing shots and how you're lighting shots and other things based on how the footage that you're shooting is going to respond to that look in the post-production process. Right. And I guess that brings us to LUTs in post-production as well. Um and so the other time you may find yourself using this, now most color correct tools will allow you to do an output LUT, so you can do this before you send your video to Scopebox. But um, there are certain times when you would want to do something like um, grade in XYZ color space or grade in P3 and actually send that out, you know, out your SDI and then have that LUTed back into Rec. 709 for scoping. Um, especially if, say, you're doing, you know, an output with a loop through to a, you know, a DCI P3 projector or something. And so would that be a case where you were trying to create a grade that sort of was the best of both worlds, that, um, you know, you were working in XYZ for the extra, you know, breathing room that XYZ gives you, but you knew that you were going to need to deliver 709 as well and wanted to make sure you weren't creating any massive issues? Yeah, I mean, I think I could see that being one use for it. I mean, the other problem is if you're in XYZ, you don't have access to standard scoping tools. Um, now, I mean, you are going to, you know, you can't really use it to look for clamping in, in the XYZ color space because the clamping may have happened on the lot side. Um, but nonetheless, actually, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how people use this. You know, they, there haven't been scopes that can work in all these arbitrary spaces, and so we'll, we'll see exactly where people go with it. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about the release process here because we're putting 3.1 out, uh, sort of fully expecting that we're going to be shipping a follow-up release to this uh, that in enhances the LUT support even more. Uh, as we said, part of the problem with this this LUT, this LUT world is that there are very few standards and it's hard to get a great 
overview of how people are using LUTs in their existing workflows and what sort of internal workflows people have built up. And so we're really looking to get feedback from users on how they'd like to see this feature grow and evolve. Um, if there right. are other LUT formats that they want supported or if there are LUTs in some of those existing formats that they're you know, that aren't loading or things like that, you know, we're looking to collect some of that data and really enhance this even further. We've made some initial choices, but uh, we're hoping our users steer this as well. And also, I mean, we're really driving this down market too. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of options for doing this, doing a live LUT in the field. I mean, you can do something like in, you know, there's a couple DIT solutions where you can push it through a third-party box to do a LUT preview on set, but... I think we're the first software-only solution to do something like this to a live signal. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what people you know come up with and uh, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Scopebox 3.1 release will actually, if you try and load one of those LUTs that either we're not supporting yet or whatever, it's actually going to prompt you to please send a copy of that LUT to us um, so that we can engage you in a, a bit of a dialogue about that. Uh, but if you've just got questions about this as well, support at divergentmedia.com. We're really interested in, in continuing this conversation. Yeah. And I mean, if you do find something, you know, even if you're not having problems, if you're doing something interesting with it, let us know what you're doing because we might be able to make it even easier. Yeah. Well, and maybe that brings us on to some of the other features that are in Scopebox 3.1 because I think that things like our new HML balance scope really are a response to us having a dialogue with colorists and saying, you know, what do you need? And, oh, we could make your life even easier by doing X, Y, Z. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So HML is huge for us. This is the starts, um, the next chapter of the Scopebox development cycle. <laughs> because, no, I mean, it really does. I mean, this is something I've wanted to do for a very long time, which is we spent years building um, a tool set that could replace existing scopes. Um, and, I mean, during that time, a lot of other people have started doing, you know, what are essentially software scopes now. I mean, it was, when this started, it was the case that for almost, you know, most of the scopes still in the field were analog. Um, the ones that were digital still didn't really feel digital. Um, and so everything was really tied to sort of these, you know, these notions of voltage and um, oscilloscopes and whatnot. And so it's been, you know, it's been a long time coming where we've sort of baked in all of the functionality we needed and robustness and, you know, sort of the core tools. And now we're at a point where we can start inventing new ways to look at these signals. Um, and so, you know, you've seen some of the other third parties do that with um, the, you know, Tektronics lightning pattern and all these other things, um, which I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about, I don't think they're incredibly intuitive. Um, but, HML is our first custom, you know, bespoke artisanal scope. <laughs> and so, and, and the goal behind it was simple. People came to us and they said, you know, we love your, you know, this is one of those great cases where 
you know, people came with specific requests and we said, dear God, why? And they, they told us and we said, oh, well, no, we'll never do that, but here's what we'll do instead. Um, and so people came to us and they said, so listen, we need to do color balance in our shadows. And so what we do is we make our window as large as possible and then we make the RGB as large as possible, and that gives us sort of a zoomed-in parade. And what we would love is if we could zoom that in even more. And, you know, people would send me these screen grabs of their layouts, and they, like, they had the RGB parade, like, filling the entire screen and then all the other palettes on top of it so <laughs> they could still see other stuff because all they wanted was that bottom, you know, right, 30 code points of their RGB signal. And I said, well, if you, you know... If, if that's what you want, you know, we could come up with a tool to try to help with color casts in shadows and highlights. And so HML is our, HML balance is our palette for that. And what it essentially is, is a vector scope that shows just your shadows, a vector scope that shows just your highlights, and then a vector scope that shows everything else. And so what we do is we let you set two split points, which is a low threshold and a high threshold in IRE. And then we separate out your signal into those three separate traces. So this way you can see, and then, you know, we give you the ability to really zoom in on these traces as well. So this way you can uh, you can see, you know, which way your trace is skewing, you know, in a hue circle. So you actually get some contacts like, oh, I'm, you know, so the problem with the RGB is you can see like, oh yeah, the red is a little above green, which is a little below blue. And then you go, let me see. So a little bit of green, so that's yellow, but the blue added in shifts it a little over, you know. And so you have to try to, you know, in your head, compute what angle that would be that you have to move your color wheel um, in a standard, you know, high, mid, low, three-way color corrector. And so what we've done instead is given you a vector scope. So now you look at the shadows, you see which way your trace is skewing, and you pull a little knob in your three-way color corrector the opposite direction. And if we've done what we think we've done, the colors will go the, you know, go neutral. Absolutely. I'm really excited to, you know, I think this is a useful feature for any sort of colorist, but I'm really excited for um, people who are just getting started in the coloring space, color colorist space to have access to this, because I think dealing with some of these issues with color tints and shadows in particular, um, it's one of those issues that is very noticeable when you're looking at a finished product. If someone hasn't done a good job of dealing with that, you know, in terms of matching shots and other things, um, or just setting a mood, but it can be a hard thing to work through with your tool set. If you don't have a good way of analyzing what's going on, because, uh, you end up doing a lot of it just sort of by sight and arbitrarily and, and making guesses. Um, and so well, I think and I that, think... you know, for people, for professional colorists who've been doing it for a long time, that is second nature. But if, if you are not, um, having a tool like this is, as you just described, going to make it really easy to deal with some of these issues. Right. And the problem has always been that color casts in shadows are just really hard 
the brain, it's not, you know, you, in mids you see color casts as color casts. In shadows you don't actually register them, I found a lot. Like, if you're, look, if you're watching a shot, you can't say, like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, it's blue in the shadows. Um, it's just that something's not right. And, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to see things where, you know, a lot of other things have been changed to try to fix what was the actual problem. Right. Uh, and it's one of those things where if you're, you know, you can play down a scene and be like, oh, yeah, no, it all matches. And then, you know, but, you know, these subtle changes in the shadow cast, you know, really subconsciously register. And it's, you know, it makes... You know, it undoes a lot of your your effort in in shot matching, and it really can pull people out of the. You know, it makes those cuts far less seamless. Yeah. And you know, the point of the point of a good scope is to you know make it so that a you can um, quickly tell whether or not you have a problem, and b you know, especially when you get into this color you know these high end color correction realms is, you know, the big point of scopes is to give you some sort of ground truth because you can't trust your eyes after a certain amount of time. Like, you just can't look at a shot until you figure it out. It's That's not possible. Um, and so the more you can rely on these tools to at least tell you whether something is right or wrong and hopefully give you some clues, you know, the more clues they can give you about what's wrong and what you have to do to fix it, the better. Yeah. And even for professional colorists, if nothing else, this is going to let them get through this process faster. Well, yeah. So, so I was out in New York last week doing a presentation at MoPictive, which is used to be the New York Final Cut Pro Users Group. And uh, the the second act of the night was Patrick Inhofer showing people how he color corrects. You know, a really good color correctionist. Um, and he doesn't look at the sh- shots. He does his entire first pass without a preview up, basically. Sure. Um, you know, everything is done by scope. And that's because, you you know, you're working against color constancy, you know, as a... Your, your mind is going to make things look right relatively quickly. And so you don't have a lot of time to look at a shot before that starts to you know, undo a lot of the things, you know, you're trying to do. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so he'll, he'll do all of his shot matching just by scopes and then go back and watch it basically for the first time after he's done that shot matching. I want to just take a, a little moment here to talk about this concept. You've just introduced this color constancy thing and this idea that, um, you know, we quickly sort of adapt to the shot we're seeing. Because I, I think, you know, if you're not working in color in video all the time, you might not be used to this. But a lot of people have probably experienced this uh, just when working with their still photos in iPhoto or Aperture or whatever. Uh, when you go in and you you have a shot, you, you took a shot with your pocket camera, your DSLR or whatever, and you go in and you make some adjustments. You might use the auto enhance and make a few other tweaks and things like that. And at each step along the way, you think, oh, yeah, that looks better, that looks better, that looks better. And then at the end, you go back and you sort of toggle that effect off 
and and it becomes much harder to sort of understand in a qualifiable way what the change is and whether it actually is better um because over you know you're you sort of just lose that ability to distinguish exactly what's changing in the shot and what the improvement actually is well you're you're actually very good at determining what the change is the problem so the the concept of color constancy it's an i guess it's a neurological phenomena but what happens is as you look at something both fatigue from the you know the actual photoreceptors in your brain or in your eyeball as well as just your brain interpreting the image actually muck with colors in order to make things look right what you're what you're actually seeing i mean the problem is what you're seeing is not what's in front of you it's a reconstruction of all the other times you've seen what's in front of you munched to look you know to have the relevant details of the thing you're looking at now and so if you're looking at a person you know outside you know what color people are and so even if you're standing under a red tarp which makes the person red they're not going to look red they're going to look person colored right and that's because that's what your brain does um and the pro- so the problem is that happens relatively quickly. So you walk outside or, you know, sometimes you'll get, you know, like you'll be in the lobby of a building or something and you'll hit that threshold between different color temp lights. And for a re- very short period of time, you'll go like, wow, it's really blue outside. You know, everything's really crisp. It looks like a Sony camera. <laughs> and then you walk outside and it's gone. And that's because in less than 60 seconds, your brain removes color tints from anything which means if you're color grading a shot your brain is actually trying to fix the same problem that you're trying to fix and so it's a race and the problem is it's additive so you're making a change and your brain's making a change so you're both trying to get rid of that green cast in the shadows and then you know best case you end up just doing half the work you needed to do to remove it worst case is you let your brain do it first, then you do it, and then you're like, oh, it looks really magenta. And so you add green back in. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so the only time you can see these things is when they're changing. And so, you know, this is why colorists just, you know, they don't stop, you know. It, a lot of times I think when people are watching colorists, they think they're working quick because they're really good or they're working quick because... You know, they're sloppy. Or they're sloppy, or they, you know, they, you know, they, oh, they know all the corners to cut. They're just, they're doing it fast because they know you're not going to notice all those problems. But I would sit down and really do it because this is my film and I've got the time and I'm not paying anybody, so it's going to look that much better. But no, they're doing it fast because they know they're screwed. <laughs> right. Like, you know, you can, you can watch it fresh tomorrow. You can't, you know, 10 minutes from now. So just blast through it. And that's where these tools become really, really useful because at least you can look and say, oh, look, there's a color cast. I can't see it, but I should put a marker here and come back and check it later. Yeah. So other features in Scopebox 3.1, the other new scope is, or other new palette, I should say, is uh, surround view meters. Um, Just a Mm -hmm. fairly minor thing, but if you're uh, working with surround audio, it's a nice way to see what's going on there. 
across the board, I think we've got some pretty good just performance improvements and general workflow improvements. Um, the app's a little more customizable. Um, we've got support for some new formats like AJA's uh, RGB template. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I really am happy with in this version, so is the um, the changes we made to envelopes, which are really pretty oh, small. Yeah, yeah. But we shipped envelopes. You know that was our re- that was our big first like thing that never that had never been done um, in three. And you know I really I'm really proud of them. And I think you know when people see them, it takes them a little while to go, oh yeah. But you know I think once you get what they're there for, um, they're an immensely useful tool. Uh, the problem was they were really annoying, <laughs> and so. We haven't changed their, we haven't changed the you know, the functioning of them at all. But what we've done is we've gone in and let you set custom colors, so you can actually put in like an intensity, like an opacity value, and dial in you know a much subtler color. And then we've added you know the whole thing has always been modeled on VU meters, you know the little peak levels. And so what we've done in this version is gone in and actually, you know, gone even more whole hog. And added ballistics like you would have on a on a view meter. So now instead of always showing that value, they actually have a little bit of a weight to them. So there's a little bit of momentum in how they move, um, which makes it a little bit easier to to catch outliers that happen for just a frame. But it also makes them a lot less fidgety. They don't jump around as much. They right. just look nicer. A lot less distracting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it looks really sweet. So try those again. If you tried them and you were like, oh, yeah, I see what these are for, but I can't leave them on because I'm having a seizure, um, try them again. Absolutely. And check out the new color preference. Um, that's where you can set all of this stuff as far as you know what you want for colors. Oh, and also take a look within the Vectorscope now. We have a user-customizable drag-and-drop hue line that you can set, which, we, which is a pretty cool way to be able to reference between shots. Um, without having to sort of put post-it notes on your screen, um, you can drag and drop a hue line and, uh, yeah. So you're working on, you know, a Coke commercial and you want to make sure the Coke bottle always falls at Coke red, bring up a color chip for Coke red, drop the dot exactly where you need it to fall. And then just hit that mark on every show. Yep. And that's it. Um, should we jump into some other news and stuff from the industry? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, divergentmedia.com slash scopebox. Grab a free trial if you haven't already. And keep an eye out for what's next. Um, and tell us what's next, too. Yeah. But I meant that other thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, You're good at this. <laughs> I didn't even know you were. Yeah, someday. We're working on something. It's going to be huge. Don't ever step away from your computer. It Don't might. go to the bathroom. Just pee in place. Because you never know when it's coming. But also don't spend any of that time trying to guess URLs and figure out what the product is. Because we might not have. Never mind. So <laughs> I, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, anyways. Yes, you might figure out the name of it if you try hard enough. It's phosphor. 
they didn't have to try that hard. No. Actually, they did. They had to get through 42 minutes of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Camera emphasizes time over space. Have you seen this? This is just a throwaway little link. Um, But it's a guy who took a sort of slit scanner and is using it to capture photos. And the way this works then is that things that are stationary become blurred lines and things that are moving become not blurred lines. And so it creates a kind of interesting look. Yeah. yeah the, the horse one, the, the top link in, or the top image in this link is I think the most interesting. Yeah. And a little too, a little too good. A little sus- suspicious. Yeah. I can see the photoshops. <laughs> well, I have seen. No, that. I mean, it, it like works because the courses happen to be going in the direction of the. Scanner right? at exactly. No, I guess it doesn't matter. They could go either way, but they have to. They have to be moving at a somewhat real, you know, reasonable rate vis-a-vis the scan speed. Right. What I don't get is how the legs worked out. I guess the dude's leg is a little funny, but still. Yeah. Very neat. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little effect. Um, he will have a nice gallery show. Exactly. Uh, some of the other ones are less interesting, but I like the horse. I like them all. They're cool. The horse the horse is good. Uh, GoPro. This is sort of the big news of the week. It's been quiet. You know, we're sort of ramping up to the holidays. IBC's over. NAB's obviously long over. Um, a lot of people don't buy, like, uh, Aria Lexus yeah, for Christmas. So. Christmas thing. It's a, uh, I, guess I mean, we, there'll be some DSLRs and junk, I right. guess. But those I, seem to be already released. Right? Yeah, because we've already had Photokina and um, all the other big shows. I guess Interbee's coming up, but uh, none of us speak Japanese. And uh, we're not going, so. Um, but yeah, like GoPro. GoPro um, you know, we saw the Sony Action Cam uh, at IBC this year, and Contour, the other big name in small little throwaway cameras, uh, released some new products last week uh, that were fairly uninteresting. But GoPro had a big event out in San Francisco uh, where they sort of threw a whole bunch of new stuff out on the table, obviously uh, realizing that they needed to respond pretty strongly to Sony getting into this space because Sony is very aggressive in this space. Um, And so they released three new models ranging from the white GoPro Hero 3 at $200 on up through a $400 product, which is a pretty big jump for them for the camera. Um, But they do 4K now, sort of. What do you mean by sort of? 12 frames a second. Uh, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. A lot of stuff is, I mean, 4K you want for like time lapse anyways. Um, they're also doing a sort of 2.7K at 30 frames a second, which is more interesting, but probably the the lower resolutions um, are the bread and butter for this camera. So there's a 1440, uh, 1440 vertical, and I, I assume 1920 wide. It's just sort of a more four by three version of 1920 that goes at 48 frames a second, and then on up through uh, in their 720 modes. Now they're doing 120 frames a second, which is pretty serious frame rate for the types of stuff people use GoPros for. You're going to be able to get some pretty nice slow motion from that. Yeah. Um, the other things that this camera is doing. Um, similar to what we saw from Sony is they've built Wi-Fi right in. Well, Wi-Fi used to be a pretty expensive add-on for the GoPro. It's now built right in and is uh, far more robust than it used to be. They've also included the Wi-Fi remote. So if you don't want to use your, your iPhone to control the, 
the camera, they've now got a wireless remote uh, that you can use to start and stop. And, and most importantly, with these GoPros, you can use the remote to confirm you're actually recording because I think that's one of the, the biggest things with these is it can be really tough to tell whether you're rolling um, or whether the camera's stopped midway through a record or something. Um, and they've uh, got all of the sort of stuff they announced at NAB in terms of color spaces and things like that. Yeah, they have a new, they have a new like, color space, right? What's the new thing called? Um, the pro, they have a thing called ProTune where they yeah, have um, frame rates that are, I, I think they'll do 23, 9, 8, and 24, and a few other things designed for just fitting into Pro workflows, and they have an expanded color space. It's not really log, but... Uh, it's basically a designed for color correction color space, sort of like what we were talking about earlier, um, that at least tries to give you a little bit more flexibility in post-production. Um, and also it has a higher bitrate mode, um, up to 35 megabits to try and deal with some of the compression artifacts that are endemic to these sorts of cameras. Um, better lenses, much smaller body, uh, really just across the board enhancements. Um, this is a pretty substantial update. Uh, much more substantial than the Hero 2 uh, versus the normal Hero. So Right. And they have a very nice video. We'll link to the video. Yes. It's fun. Um, yeah. So be- they're really becoming like a runner-up to Red Bull for, I don't know, people who slap their names on kayaks and... Absolutely. Parachutes and stuff. Well, and I'm not sure how much of what they're doing is actual yeah, physical, uh, financial sponsorships or whether they just give away a lot of these cameras in exchange yeah. for, for stickers on things. Um, I would assume it's the latter, but uh, it's, I mean, obviously, the, you know, the fact that they were able to do a $500 million acquisition of Cineform tells you that they're not really hurting for cash, um, or at least that their revenues support sort of big dollar amounts being tossed around. So, yeah. Um, you know, and and any you know, you can't sort of you can't not see GoPros uh, when you're out in the world these days. It seems like whether it's you know in motorsports or um, you know traditional sort of sports or um, you know other sports. Well, I'm just trying to you know non-traditional sports, sports is sort of all encapsulating. But you just sort of see these things everywhere. Um, you know, people use them for dash cams. People are using them to document protests. I see a lot of people using them to actually just sort of shoot documentaries and things like that. I see people walking around with them on, you know, little mini monopods um, and other things just because they're tiny and you can sort of hoist them up above a crowd and get a shot. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty incredible, uh, even though obviously they're not shooting the world's best looking video. They're tiny and disposable. And it right. turns out that that's all people you need a lot of the time. Yeah. So I'll be eager to get a, a chance to play with one of these. I don't know if I'm going to replace mine since I, I don't really use mine that much, but uh, uh, this is definitely an attractive option. So are these ones doing the thing like the action cam where you can get the live signal? They're not, right? Yeah, they are. They are? Yeah. Oh, interesting. But that's uh, just with the iPhone app? R- iPhone or I. I Fairly certain they have an Android app, but yeah. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Is it decent quality? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, with the action cam it is, I guess I'm not sure what the quality of the uh, GoPro wireless is. Okay, I wonder if it's good enough. I mean, because one of the things I saw that people were complaining about was a lack of um, direct-to-the-web streaming Uh, over this Wi-Fi. I wonder if it's good enough that you can do that through a laptop. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, like do a three-camera shoot. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Wireless. I don't know too much about how they're doing the wireless. If the camera actually, I, I, my understanding is the camera actually acts as a base station. Um, sure. And so it would be a little tricky. That gets to, trouble, yeah. Yeah, but there, there may be some ways around that or um, some clever intermediary bridging or something you could do. But that's an interesting idea. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, you know, when the action came cam came out, the initial response was, "Wow, they've really." step the game up and so it's cool to see obviously this has been in the pipeline for a while um but it's it's good to see gopro sticking with it and and taking the fight back to sony right and you know i mean i think at the end of the day like you know gopro's gonna win because they care more you know it's just such a it's not a large market for sony and you know sony's doing it because there's money in it whereas the impression i get is these gopro guys i mean they live in half moon bay i think they're all surfers uh, you know, like every one of these guys, you know, this is one of those niche markets that came out of, you know, someone's actual need for something. And I just don't think, you know, the Sony guys are going to roll up in a van and get out in their suits and convince the market that they've got a better product. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, yeah. Um. One other sort of big story this week was uh, Google finally opening up their data centers for tours. Um, did you look at any of these articles or find anything interesting here? So, yeah. So they opened, they let one guy in. Yeah, yeah Stephen Levy. Steve Levy, who's written books about Google. I mean, he's, I'm sure he was required to, I mean, I'm sure he was on a pretty short leash as far as what he could say. And I don't think he was trying to burn any bridges there. And leak information. Um, but the other thing they did was um, posted on Street View. And so, I don't know. I mean, I mean they're kind of cool pictures. I didn't read the article. I read the... I mean, I read a little bit of it. But. I read the Wired piece. Um, some other people had... Because Google put up a site as well um, about some of this. And so some other people wrote sort of second... Um, second tier articles about it but yeah i mean it's there was nothing in there surprising obviously they still consider big chunks of how this works to be trade secrets and so this i mean so i guess i mean the big thing is this used to be incredibly secretive google didn't even announce for a long time that they were more efficient than everyone else i mean there was a long period of time where they were you know drastically using drastically less energy than everyone else in the market and they wouldn't even say that publicly. Um, they wouldn't even say that they owned data centers. Um, and so, but I mean, a lot of this has gotten out. You know, they've released at least their like energy usage figures and such um, previously. And at some point, you know, it seemed like the market caught up. I mean, Facebook's data centers are at least as advanced. Right, and they've open sourced theirs. I mean, they're like you can find out a heck of a lot more information about theirs than you can. Right. Well, the reality is because there's only a handful of people in the world who are really good at building data centers. I mean, it's a big handful, but it's a small community. They all move between companies, and even if they don't move between companies, the contractors who are doing a lot of the work are working for all these companies. Right. You know, it's it's you can't keep these things a secret. They're too big and. You're all working through the same vendors at some level. Um, 
you know, even if it's just sort of buying the wiring chases and things like that. Um, so, and most of the stuff in the Steve Levy article, yeah, I mean, I read it and said like, oh, well, that's just how modern data centers work, you know. Yeah, you colorize the piping to make it really clear what's what and where it's going. You know, you, uh, you have hot aisles and cold aisles. You, and, and I get that a few years ago that wasn't standard practice, but it definitely is in any modern data center. So, Right. Um, so and I the other know. thing I didn't, I mean, so do you think this is true across the board now, or is this just true in like the custom built, we own our own data center data centers? Like, is our data center run like this? Yeah, I mean, to some extent or another, you know, our data center, the physical plant is older. It wasn't constructed within the last three, four right. years. Right. Um, but even, you know, I mean, definitely any new construction data center will be. Um, and even a lot of sort of old data centers as they get retrofitted take on most right. of these, these designs. I mean... Um, I mean, I guess the the big difference is that you know if you're if you're leasing hardware or even doing you know like a virtual machine like we are, you're probably running on um, stock hardware. They're probably not building out systems for that yeah. in the way some of these other. I mean, some of these other people are like a little more bleeding edge. Um, or I would guess if you're if you're leasing those assets to other people, you probably go a little more conservative. Right. Well, and it just, you know, if you, you know, our, our virtual machines at Linode aren't sort of magically running across in a massive sort of cloud platform in terms of the ability to recover from a hardware failure or something like that. So they need to take that into account, whereas Google can build the relatively unreliable hardware and deal with it at a higher level. Right. Um, but no, I think, you know, the, uh, the, one of the main takeaways from the article, if you haven't read a lot about data center design is that there was an inflection point in the industry a few years ago where, uh, it used to be that we worried about getting enough bandwidth to our data centers. And now we worry about getting enough power to our data centers. And so you can walk into a data center that was constructed a few years ago and you'll see lots of, you know, half empty racks and um, the reason is because they don't have enough power to run a computer at every mount point in that rack. Um, and so power efficiency, and that includes power efficiency of UPSs and cooling systems as well, is the number one issue. It's not space because we've got blades and other things now. It's not bandwidth because we've got, well, and we've tons got the of Midwest. Fiber. Right. Um, but it's, it's power efficiency, so... Which, I mean, I guess, you know, it's surprising we haven't gone to ARM yet. Well, I mean, there's, there's there probably... The company's s- trying to do it. Yeah. Just it, think about it, but... It's also surprising to me that uh, you don't see more data centers going the DC-only route, um, mm-hmm. which, which has some, uh, you know, potential savings. Um, and I guess it Google didn't say explicitly in this one way or the other, but... Uh, you know, there's definitely pros and cons on that, but yeah. Um, you didn't get to the uh, show out in New York about the the the, the Metropolitan about uh, Photoshop or pre-Photoshop, did you? This one that I've no. Okay, I didn't even hear about this. 
Yeah, so um, the, uh, there's a Verge story, as with everything they do, a very nicely documented and written uh, story from The Verge talking about a exhibit that's up at the Met right now um, looking at photo retouching pre-Photoshop and going on back through the sort of 19th century and up through the Nazis and Stalin and all of that and just sort of looking at the different ways that we've always been retouching photos, either to just clean them up and enhance them and deal with the technical limitations of old cameras or for you know artistic reasons or for deception reasons, reasons of deception. Um, so it's an interesting piece. It, I really wish I um, could get to the exhibit at the Met. I think it'd be really cool. But uh, since we can't do that, at least we can read the article. Yeah. Um, and it looks like the exhibit's up through January. So if you've got any New York City travel on your agenda and you're into these sorts of things, um, a stop by the Met is well worth it, I think. We've been going for a while. You want to just yeah. hit chatter now? Yeah, we, we can just wrap things up here. Okay. So mine was... Um, a picture, which I don't have an original. I just have a link to Kotke, where he posted it, which is um, an awesome um, retouching of a Vermeer, which is the girl with an earring and point-and-shoot camera. Right, girl with the pearl earring. Girl with the pearl earring. So girl with the pearl earring, famous picture with the blue headband and the earring. Um, except it's been sort of munched, so it looks like it's a Facebook profile photo yeah. <laughs> being taken in a bathroom window, and it it's it's a it's a pretty solid uh, parody. Yeah, they did a, a the guy did a nice job. Um, so yes, I, did you read anything into this? Do you want to have a nice? Uh, discourse about no i'm good no, just check it out okay. chuckle a little right. move on with your day um my link is an end gadget story um hyundai and broadcom announced a deal uh, to start using broadcom's ethernet technology in cars uh in the in the future uh, broadcom has a ethernet platform designed for automotive uses so hardened for dealing with the world that is inside a car. But the idea is that you can actually start to integrate things like your infotainment, your stereo, and your GPS and everything with things like safety systems, security systems, etc., on a single, fairly traditional Ethernet transport within the car. Um, and the idea is to reduce the amount of cabling necessary and the amount of discrete, discrete computers necessary um, and actually make the system you know, lighter weight and more efficient and easier to deal with. Right, because cars have like a couple hundred CPUs floating around them now, and a right. few different you know handfuls of protocols right. connecting You've them. Got, you know, CAN bus, which is the semi-standard protocol that manages a lot of the the chassis platform, and then you've got proprietary infotainment systems and proprietary security systems and all sorts and lower of level things for short hops like SPI and right. And, and a lot of just straight up, um, you know, bundles of electrical wires. Um, right. the idea with this sort of technology is you can move to 
twisted pair and move small processors to the places they're most useful and most efficient and not have these big bundles of individual wires running around. And it makes it easier for your digital radio to be hacked to then take over your drive computer or something. Yeah. 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 It's good. What was that movie where the hacker like hacked the car and made the doors lock and like the brakes stop? That's Uh, totally. I don't know, but that's the, it's going to happen. Well, the other news this week was that Nissan announced uh, that next year or within a couple years, they're going to have their first car that has um, purely electric steering, as in there's <laughs> no direct fly-by-wire. Yeah, fly-by-wire steering. Um, although it will have a security system built in where if the system fails, it like just deploys a clutch that locks the wheel into some sort of physical control. So. Hmm. But yes, the idea is that you can actually have a more responsive and... Uh, smoother interaction sure. and um they can also then do cool things like counter steer in a skid for you and whatnot right and also not you know break your wrists in an accident they break your wrists in accidents well there can be issues in certain types of accidents because our you know natural reaction is to hold on really tight to the steering wheel and if your front wheels sort of um get torqued in Kicks such a way or something yeah yeah i mean it's a it's a big issue in racing, but even in on the road accidents, especially with things like airbags and whatnot, it can be not so great if your arms have been twisted over each other and then an airbag blows or Sure. Oh. So. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh we will see you again soon ish. Yes. And try scope box three one and let us know what you think. Yes. All right. Talk to you soon. Later.